there everybody and welcome to the mandown media podcast my name's nick bentley and i run mandown media it's not all i get up to though i also work for pink bike covering tech out of the world cup where i get to speak to brands riders and the teams that support them all about the bikes they ride the tech behind them and their tricks and tips to keeping those bikes performing at the highest level this has given me a little bit of thought about how i set up my own bike why i've picked parts how i've ended up with setups that i have and maybe whether or not they're right for me. So what I've done is I've taken my Cannondale Jekyll and I've turned it into what Vital MTB kind of coined a down Duro bike. I ride my e-bike mostly these days, so my Jekyll gets used just for uplift days, bike part laps, and when I'm out in the Alps, when I'm out working at the World Cup. It kind of made sense to beef it up a little bit. So what I've done is I've put a box of fork out front, a coil shock on the back, changed up some of the other components to make it a little bit more beefy, and basically turn it into a mini downhill bike. It's a whole lot of fun to ride and it's been a lot of fun to build up. So what I thought I'd do is I grabbed some of the people who helped me build it along the way, as well as some other people from inside the industry to help us understand why we pick the parts we do, how we set them up, and also some little tricks that they can give me to help me go a little bit faster whilst I use this bike to race the mini downhill series based in the Forest of Dean. I know I'm not going to set the timing sheets alight, despite what everybody seems to think, just because I work for Pink Bike doesn't necessarily make me one of the fastest riders out there. I'm a very average rider, I normally play somewhere in the middle of the Masters field, but I'm pretty happy with that. The most important thing for me when I'm out racing is having fun on my bike. And to me, getting the opportunity to chill out in the uplift queue, chat to fellow bike riders, and have a bit of fun racing against each other really is one of the most important things that I do when I'm not out covering races. The first episode starts with wheels and tyres. I've done it this way because really I don't think you can talk wheels without talking tyres and you can't talk tyres without talking wheels. They're so interlinked. Whether that's rim width to tyre width, all about tyre pressure, which as you'll learn for me is a big deal, and everything in between. These two parts really are so intertwined. It's not smart, really, I think, to think about one without thinking about the other. So in the first episode, we've got hump wheels. I currently use their e-mountain bike wheel as my wheel for my downhill bike. Talk a little bit more about that. Alongside them, we have Pirelli, who in the UK are distributed by Extra. And they come along and talk to us about tyre choices, tyre pressures, and a few little other bits and pieces. Let's uh, listen in to what the guys have got to say when I interviewed them last week. And maybe we'll all learn something. If not, we'll have a bit of a laugh at the fact I run stupid tyre pressures. So without further ado, here's the guys from Hunt and Pirelli. Okay, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Mandar Media podcast. I think, first of all, we'll probably just go around and give some introductions to everyone who's here. So first up, we'll start with the Hunt guys. So, Ollie, do you want to go first? I'm uh, Ollie Mant, test and development engineer for Hunt I'm Andy. think I'm the senior, yeah, senior marketing manager for Hunt. I'm Mike. I'm a senior marketing manager for Extra UK and we're the uh, Pirelli distributors in the UK. One of the things we were saying just before we started was the general idea here of having you guys together is wheels and tyres are so intrinsically linked. You can't really talk one without talking the other. Both bits affect each other. Stupid tyre pressures that people like me run affect both, in my opinion, of both. We'll start with a pretty easy topic to start with. I'm not sure how easy it'll be. And that's wheel size. I've got my Jekyll that I'm using for this whole process built up. And I did some really unscientific testing. You'll really like this, Ollie. I was very lucky that 417 let me have a free use of their bike part for a little while. So I can get some laps in. I did some two laps, one with full 29, one with uh, mullet. Granted, it wasn't the same tires. It was a different tire on the back from what I had before. It was an old carbon Chinese rim. So it wasn't very scientific. And there were a couple of hours apart. The biggest failure in this bike is definitely the person sat on top of it. I did some back-to-back testing there. And basically, they came out a second apart. Two minutes, seven for a full descent of their red on the full 29. It's kind of weird there. It's like real jumpy, but they chuck loads of rocks in. The red feels sometimes a bit too feature heavy. I also went out and rode their black to do some bits and pieces, but it was so greasy. It was death before the rock gone. So it was so bad. It's like an uncut black at the top. It's just scary. So yeah, I was one second apart. The mullet was one second quicker. 
And given the fact that it was a second effort run I did, I also think the time is kind of affected by the fact I was running a rubbishy Shimano disc that's a bit old, so the brakes didn't feel great either. I find it interesting that the mullet came out a little bit ahead, and the feel of it, it felt more snappy. What I think now is, from your guys at Hunt, to start with, do you see more people ordering mullet now than you do 29er? I think it's still more, mostly 29. We do have people ordering mullets, and we do do the wheels and mullet options, but 29 is still the most popular. But what's interesting is, like, you mentioned the snappiness, like the agility, and that's what we normally talk about and what we hear when we're reading reviews and stuff. What we found with um, testing with, like, Fergus Ryan and Joe Connell, they find that the 29 is meant for, like, flat-out, fast, rocky stuff and, like, you know, stuff that's less twisty through the trees. The mullet is better, like, it's lower fatigue in the corners because they can drop the bike into the corners a bit better. Which is really interesting because I never even considered that it could actually tire you out having to go around all these corners because I'd stop after two or three. But they're doing them stuff all the way down the hill. So the mullet is actually less fatiguing for them. So that was pretty interesting. I don't know, was it a very twisty track that you're on or not? Uh, twisty-ish, it's a fair few berms. I think the main thing I felt is the acceleration difference, maybe. is you do drop it into a corner and then you've got to jump back on the pedals relatively quick. Spinning up the 27.5 wheel is a little bit easier than spinning up a big old 29er wheel. But also lower centrifugal forces, so it should be easier to snap in and out. And that's, that gives it a snappiness because there's less weight to rotate, essentially. I don't know about the Jekyll, but probably drops your center of gravity slightly lower, so get around it a bit nicer that way. It does. I'm not running the right link for it. So there's a cascade link that I have on the way that readjusts my CAG of the bike to kind of return it pretty much to standard. Crashing through rock gardens is a scary moment because you're not quite sure, like, you have to make sure your pedal's level. I mean, the other unscientific thing is I was running a different tire, right? The race tires that I've got on the back of my bike are pretty sticky, and it was quite a hard V that I put on instead, so there'll be a slight difference there. If you're running a harder compound tire, it's definitely going to roll quicker, especially on smoother terrain, where the advantages of a softer tire are back are really going to come in is when you're on really rough ground, you're on really loose ground, it's more about the friction, the bite, trying to maintain direction or trying to force you to change direction or you forcing the bike to change direction. On the super smooth stuff, it's almost like when you see guys on BMX tracks, they're not running super sticky tires, they're actually running really fast tires because what they're trying to achieve is, is all that speed. On smoother tracks, probably like the Red Runner to you know, 4 and 7, yeah, it's probably going to help you a little bit. I think that's where it will change when I, I hit the FOD. Uh, obviously, racing the first time this weekend, it's going to be wet, it's going to be cold, and there will be tons of routes. You were running quite nicely, actually, on Wednesday. It was actually quite nice. It was just the, you know, the really bike parky bit towards the end. That was proper slippy, but the rest of it was mint. I always find that bit to be really soft. Like, it's always really hard work, like, because it flattens out and it's just a little bit extra work, yeah. So you're going to race on 29 or you're going to race on mullet? I don't know. At the moment, the bike's still set mullet because I'm lazy and I'm changing it across. I'm going to do some testing tomorrow. I'm going to run in the morning on my e-bike. That's the benefit of uh, mini downhill, right? Saturday's not a proper practice day. So I'll run my e-bikes. I'll run in full 29 on my e-bike. It's the same wheel setup. Come to that in a minute. I'm doing something that I probably shouldn't be doing, but I am doing it. I'll run probably in the morning on my e-bike and then do probably three or four runs on the big bike to try and figure out what I want to do. My gut feeling is I'll probably run mullet. The track's short at FOD. It'll be a little bit twisty. And that feeling of extra acceleration, I think, will be really useful. I would have gone 29 because I know that the tracks at FOD are quite straight. Oh, really? That's interesting. Well, it depends what they pick. It really does depend what they pick. I did one last year and they put it on something quite twisty through the midsection because they always try and gain some track length, right? Because it's a minute and a half descent. It doesn't matter which way you splice it, right? I'd go with Ollie on this one, full 29er for me, mainly because I'd want to run 27 on the rear, especially if it's getting ridiculously steep. I don't know, it's going to sort of like, the rear tire's going to like check my bum going down. Whereas at Ford, there's nothing overly steep, especially, you know, even in some of the fresh cut stuff, it's not super steep. So I'd probably go with the all-out speed and focus on trying to maintain corner speed rather than having to keep putting in those accelerations. Tire buzz, I'm only five foot seven. Tire buzz I'm used to. I could buzz my ass on the mullet bike. It doesn't matter. That could be another reason why you feel maybe a bit more at home on the mullet. Because if you're not six foot three and you're running a full 29er, you're going to feel like you've got a bit more room to move around the bike. It's going to maybe feel like it fits you a little better. 
we're not all Greg Menard, right? So we're not all massive running double XL bikes. Well, Ollie is, sorry. I was going to say, I haven't lose you that hard. <laughs> <laughs> is that where the similarities end between you and Menard, or is that like, you know? No, Menard's not quite as quick, is he? With my track record from yesterday. Can Ollie keep a tire on the rim? Is that a difference? It's more about keeping Ollie on the bike, isn't it, Ollie? Yeah, at the moment it is, yeah. <laughs> Whilst we're talking mullet, one of the questions I was keen to ask, and one of the reasons Ollie's here, is from a forces point of view, on the wheel, is there any design differences you make, knowing that mullet exists now and people are doing this mixed wheel size? Is it something you're conscious of during the design process? It's something we think of, but it's a real tricky one. And it's balancing up the manufacturing costs on top of everything else. Like We can design the same rim and then change spokes if we wanted to. And then it's also the quickest way to get a wheel out of the door in Taiwan end sort of thing and then with the rim to have that one die where the rims extruded through that makes it so much cheaper but it's something that we are currently looking to I suppose it depends on what we're looking at doesn't it really like on the alloy side of things we tend to develop like the extrusion we run both so the 27 29 through the same extrusion it just means that we develop the best rim that will give the best performance best balance of comfort and durability without an insane cost. And if we start developing different extrusions for different wheel sizes, then that cost gets passed on to the customer. And that's just something that we don't do. With that said, carbon fiber is different. Carbon fiber, we have a lot more tunability with it. Like we're not necessarily looking for the lightest wheel. We're able to like play around with the layups where the reinforcement goes. So for sure, on the carbon side of things, that would be definitely something that we would be looking at because like proven wheels, they're front and rear, well, a lot of our alloy wheels are front and rear specific, but the proven wheels then on top of that have different layups, different reinforcement areas between two very similar profiles. And that probably will give us a lot more ability to play around with this. Like, you know, this is going to be a mullet specific setup. Yeah, you can change the amount of carbon lay in it to then give different weight, different strengths as you see fit, essentially. That kind of brings in that stiffness versus compliance kind of argument, right? There's definitely a, a feeling of, I don't know, most people think I run a really, really stiff wheel so I can carry speed and stay on the line I want or whatever. But actually, I found I've ridden your wheels for a little while and I used to have the all-mountain carbon rim, which obviously has a more compliant front than rear. I really enjoyed that. But what I can say is the um, e-bike wheel that I'm running right now, the e-all-mountain, feels much stiffer. And in fact, it's kind of not even anecdotal. The back of my Canon Del Montero is a spoke-based magnet for the speed sensor. On my carbon rim, I get occasional uh, speed sensor warnings where I'm hitting berms or whatever, and it's you know the wheel's flexing and it's missing its pickup. I have not experienced that at all on the Alley All Mountains. I feel like they're a bit better for it. I thought I'd miss that compliance, but I'm kind of enjoying that extra bit of stiffness. Do you think people need to be more conscious of that? A lot of people would say, generally, you think carbon's stiffer than aluminium, but you're saying the opposite. Everything's developed specifically for its purpose. So it is interesting that you found that with the, the Eol Mountains, because they're designed for a heavier bike, perhaps a heavier rider. But then like e-bike, if you're like a good rider on an e-bike, you're like thrashing that thing well hard through corners. And that's a lot of weight to go through those wheels. You're like If you run trail wides on that, you would find something totally different. It's not a material thing, that it's that wheel was developed for that specific use. That's kind of the point I was coming to. And I guess what you were saying, Ollie, about if you wanted to make a wheel stronger for a mullet setup, you'd maybe look at different spokes, different spoke count, different wheel build. It's more about wheel build, really, than just simply going, oh, I've got a carbon wheel, it must be stiffer, right? It could be the number of spokes, the type of spoke they use, because like, we use like different diameter spokes front and rear on some of our wheels. So we can play around with that compliance as well. There's loads. There's so much involved. And then when you talk about carbon, it's like carbon isn't a material. It's a process. So you can't talk about totally different things. Yeah, then like with carbon, you can then go into creating pre-impregnated pieces and put it in to see, I know, that could add in strength if you want. could change the whole feel of the wheel as a result of those small little changes. Ollie, you perfectly kind of segued me there as well. Because we're talking about the stiffness in the wheel, right? And stiffness or compliance. But I could have the stiffest wheel in the world, put an XC tire on it or something with a weak sidewall casing, and it's just going to feel like mush. 
Mike, we're talking downhill tires. So the ones that I have on mine, do you want to go through them a little bit? Absolutely. So uh, you're running the latest like Pirelli Scorpion race tires and you've got the Scorpion race Enduro M up front and Scorpion race downhill M on the rear. Basically, that's the latest tire, latest mountain bike tire from Pirelli. They've sort of geared it more towards races where it's prioritizing grip and it's prioritizing support over sort of anything else. They're not going to roll quite as quickly as some of the, the cross-country or the trail tires, but they're going to have massive amounts of grip, huge mud clearance, you know, really, really tall tread on them. We saw what we spoke about from this, this sort of the project you were doing is actually the difference between the downhill and the enduro tires. It's basically going between a, a, a multi-60 TPI casing and a multi-120 TPI casing. The higher the thread count, essentially the more supple the carcass. So in your setup with the enduro tire up front, and the downhill tire out the back, you've got the support and stiffness and protection. Then up front, you've got a slightly more supple tire. It should offer a bit more compliance, for a little bit more grip in the corners and, the, uh, and on the rough stuff, really. Yeah, I definitely feel that. I rode Black, not Black Mountain anymore, is it? It's a dirt farm, isn't it, now? I rode that two or three weeks ago with the Cannondale guys, and it was wet. In the burns where it was slick and slippy and not very nice, you appreciated the grip, but trying to pull a tire with loads of grip through wet, sticky mud was um, definitely a workout. One of the really important things to sort of to know about tires and tires in general of mountain bikes is it's always compromised, no matter what you do. You can never have, or no one yet has managed to master a incredibly grippy, sticky tire that rolls really quickly because fundamentally those two things are diametrically opposed. There's a lot of people that think necessarily a soft tire will wear quicker, and that's not strictly true because there are additional compounds you can add into tire casings, which add tear resistance, which add wear resistance. But generally, a softer thing will grip more, and grip is the enemy of rolling resistance. What I sort of recommend is, you know, if people are running trail centers, they're running sort of the local trails and it's sort of cross-country loops, then, you know, like trail or enduro tire with brilliance, they call it smart grip gravity. It's their sort of mid-spec, mid-softness, single compound rubber. It's going to be a nice compromise between rolling resistance, wear rate, and grip. Whereas if they're getting into more sort of the gnarlier terrain, more gravity racing side of things, a single race tire up front or race tires front and back would definitely be a pretty big upgrade on that in terms of grip. Obviously, the tire impacts the wheel quite a bit, right? Like we said, you can have the stiffest wheel in the world, but if your tire's made of sponge, it's not going to be the same thing. When you guys at Hunt test wheels and stuff, do deliberate testing separate? So like testing in the lab without tires on and stuff and, and then with tires on and, and vice versa? So we have standard tire we test with for mountain bike. It's Magic Mary in Italy. We've got a good relationship with Schwabi and what we've well before I've joined, what they decided to choose. We continue through to make it replicable throughout so we can compare current data to past data and see how the wheels are affected whether it be fresh testing or impact testing it's something we have looked into is to remove that tire and using say our impact tester without but then using a layer of something there yeah you can't just smash a hammer on a rim right it isn't gonna work so for example the iso test is actually a rubber pad straight onto the rim but we feel this is not replicable of the real world. It's like no one rides without a tire on and at no pressure. So you might as well have something there which is replicable. So we go to a standard Magic Mary 2.4 inch with 28 PSI, which is quite a reasonable pressure for anyone to run. Sounds like a lot of pressure to me. That sounds like a lot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that's what we do. We want to make it as close to real world as possible. We also test the wheel at an angle too. So we're not hitting it like across both beads. We hit it at an angle, so it's more like realistic. The next kind of thing we kind of touched on there is tire pressures, but because I'm a print journalist and I forget that things have to be in an order when we do this, I will quickly go through my setup because although we talked about the tires I'm using, I am doing something a little bit strange, right? I'm running my e-bike wheels on a boxer fork, so I have a fork mod in it, so I can run a 15 mil axle. To be honest, I got a downhill wheel off GT Virus team who I do some work with here in the UK, so they lent me a downhill wheel. On my, again, real scientific testing, I couldn't really feel the difference between the 15mm axle and the 20mm axle. I probably noticed more that I jumped from the Pirelli tyre to an Agassi, 
like Ollie said, he saw the clip from the weekend where I was deliberately not being very gentle through some rock gardens to try and see if I noticed that feeling. And there's a pretty chunky one, which wasn't in that video in there. It's called Ginger Nuts, which is an appropriate um, name for a track there. But it's a pretty chunky rock garden. I couldn't tell the difference between having the 15 and the 20 in. I don't see it causing a big shoot. Like fork technology has come on so far now. It seems odd that they haven't gone to 15 on downhill. I find it weird because the box is so stiff. Although I find it weird they don't use torque caps on the boxer. So we use torque caps on enduro bikes and stuff, right, to improve stiffness. And then the one place where you think, oh, you want to chuck all the stiffness in the world at a downhill bike that someone's going to charge for a rock garden, they're not torque cap compatible. Definitely a question I'm asking RockShock later on. Why? The stiffness thing, though, is interesting, though, isn't it? Because, like, you can put too much stiffness into your bike. There is a point where we're seeing lots of reviewers and testers now getting on some of the latest forks and going too stiff. Again, the opposite of stiffness is flex. Well, another way of saying flex can be compliance. You actually need a certain degree of compliance in a frame. If you look at things like MotoGP chassis, you know, a lot of those guys have very, very custom-tuned swing arms because actually what they're seeking is a degree of compliance to help track the ground better. And if you've got an incredibly stiff chassis on something like the Boxer, if you start stiffening that up further, all that's going to happen is the rider's going to get a bunch of arm pump when it's going to shake the teeth out and it's going to do horrible things for these riders. Once that wheel's bolted up, in reality, the difference between a 20mm and 15mm axle is very minimal. As long as it's torsionally across the axle, holding it stiff, the axle stops doing a fair bit of work after a little while once it's all bolted up. It is a, a whole assembly. I mean, you're more talking about the stiffness of the fork and things, and that's a whole other thing. There's not much difference now between enduro rights and downhill rights. The downhill World Cup circuit is not too different from the Enduro World Cup circuit, but they're very similar tracks. The forces they're seeing are very similar. There's not those difference between a Zeb and a Boxer. That, that's very comparable, really. Didn't some riders do Rampage on a Zeb? So that's going to have a 15mm axle in it? Could you build a Boxer from a Zeb and have a 15mm axle? Oh, that's a great question for me to ask Evan. That is a great question. They feel like you could, because they carry the same 38mm stanchion now. Because they used to have that back in the day, didn't they? Like that old Judy DHO. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know how old you all are, but I'm old. But they had the Judy DHO. And it was just a duty, but with extra... Extra stanchions, yeah, I remember that. Ollie wasn't even born when the sport was made, probably. Whilst we're all kind of talking, rim width is a big thing, right? And it affects both wheel and tyre. Probably should have done more research, but what rim width are the wheels that I'm running at the minute? Those are... So they're 31, aren't they? So they're a bit wider than the old impact carbons that I had. And I'm running 2.5 wide tyres. Do you think there's a big thing in that? I mean, we went mental, didn't we, for a while with rim width. There was like 35 mil wide ones being done and, and then other people were staying at 28. Do you think we've kind of settled now in that kind of place of low 30s? Like 30, 31, like 33-ish sounds like where people are settling down. There's always going to be like those niche types of riding where really wide or really narrow, like fat bikes and things. You're going to need way bigger rims. And then like, yeah, obviously cross-country can sometimes benefit from an hour rim, but even that, like modern cross-country tracks are gnarly. So even those guys are going for like wider 2.4, 2.5-inch tires, and then it makes sense for those to go over to a 30mm internal rim width too. So it does seem to be like the sweet spot here. And Mike, I suppose from a tire point of view, your tire width has a target rim width, right, that goes with it. You've got to pay attention to that when you buy a tire. You can't just stick a 2.6-inch wide tire on a really, really narrow rim, right? There's no set you have to run this rim size on these tires. There's no published information on that. But as Andy and Ollie were saying, there's a pretty accepted rim width now. And anywhere between 28, 29 mil up to that 32, 33 mil mark, anywhere within there, you're going to be absolutely fine with sort of modern day tire standards. And that's anything from, you know, 2.3, 2.6 inches. The trouble with going much past that sort of rim width, either too narrow or too wide, is it's going to have an effect on the tyre profile. Tyres have been sort of engineered and designed to have a very, very specific shape. You want the outer and the inner tread in a very specific place. You don't want them pointing at like 9 o'clock and 3 o'clock. Otherwise, you're going to have to be an absolute hero to get on the edge tread. Similarly, you don't want those edge treads to be pointing completely vertically. Because it might feel great for a, a newer rider because they can get on that edge tread quickly. But all of a sudden, you lean it past that, you run out of tread pretty quickly and you're going to wash out. High roller two moment. Yeah, the, the, the gap in the middle, you know, you want to try and avoid the gap either in the middle or at the end. 
as long as they're running what I would term a sensible width on so modern tires, and that is like between 28, 33, you know, even up to 35 mil, they're going to be absolutely fine. It shouldn't have a big impact on anything like tire retention, the tire staying on the rim and things. You know, if you start to notice stuff like that happening, then yeah, it might be time to look at the rim width and see if that does have an effect. Which, it, where is potential for that though? There's the ECRGO standard, which is almost like a safety standard. So it's um, a standard which covers lots of different disciplines, whether it be bikes, whether it be airplanes, whether it be tractor wheels, car wheels, it covers it all. Basically, is a guideline to say what is safe between the relationship between inner rim profile and tire size used. So there is that point where there's that safety concern there. Obviously, with mountain biking, we're not using super high pressures and we generally are now using in the gravity side of things anyway, which fit that bill anyway. So it's not such the end of the world, but there is a potential, as I say, for like if you want to go to the extreme, for there to be that safety concern. Yeah, I mean, tyre retention is an interesting topic. I made the joke about it. it'd be nice if Greg Monarch could keep a tyre in a rim. He's had a pretty horrible season with it in downhill. And one of the other things I wanted to bring in is obviously I spend a lot of time around the downhill circus and you see riders now like, well, not now, it's an old trick, but reusing old tricks like Danny Hart using Sikaflex to bond wheels to rims to give him that save moment. You know, if he does have a flat that the tyre's staying on there. How do you guys feel about that? Ali's not sure what we mean. It's like just sealing, actually sealing the tires to the wheels on some of the guys. Ollie, you didn't read my article. That's just rude, mate. That's bad. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, they've been keeping it relatively quiet all year. Like it wasn't very obvious, but the way the pits were at World Champs, it was quite exposed. And his mechanic was sat there, genuinely black sicker flexing on in the bead, put the silicon sealant, oh wow, bonding sealant on, and then put the tire onto that. Almost like doing a tub. It's almost like making a tub. But then I guess we're at the stream end of the sport, right? Ollie will probably do, be able to do it. I'm not going to be able to whack a tire off a wheel. But Danny Hart is a little machine, isn't he? And he's going fast. For those guys, it could be a placebo too. Sometimes it's just, is my tire going to come off? I just need that assurance that it's not going to. It might be perfectly safe. I'm sure it is 99% of the time. But that just means that he's a bit more confident to whack it into corners and stuff and win a race. I'm not sure what rims he is using, but they are. There is the potential. I know that certain brands, I'm not going to mention, aren't actually ECRTO standard. Like we have gone through it and they're not. So, sort of like reinforcing just what you say, you know, the men and women racing at the world champs, they're superhuman in terms of the skills and the speeds they're going. If anyone's ever been to watch one of these races, you know, if you think you've got that fast mate in the group who might tear off tires and things and they feel they're pretty quick, go watch the pros and they're coming down not a bit quicker, it's two or three times quicker. They are at the extremes. Fort William is the best place to humble you pretty quickly, right? It's not Greg anymore that's got the lap record at Fort Bill. It's um, Laurie Greenland got it at BDS, right? I think it's about four minutes 20 or, or somewhere around that. And that is printed in the start hut, right? You try and go down there anywhere near that level of speed. It's almost inconceivable to understand where they find that speed from. Even the helicopter, which would have to uplift me from there on a stretcher, would take longer to get down to the bottom than that. Yeah, if there's an accident, just send him down. Just send Laurie down and he'll be quicker than anybody else. That being done at that location, the location played into it as well. Fort William is brutal on wheels and tyres. And the way they've made the track now makes it even more brutal because they've got these flatter bike parky sections. The riders are saying they're just carrying so much speed through. And then you hit one of those big old chunky Fort William rock gardens and just carnage happens, right? That was a good race for us, you know, for Pirelli. You know, we had Henry Kiefer who went down in the juniors and, and took the win with his uh, on Canyon Collective Pirelli, and he was on the Pirelli tie. So it, it sort of shows that the, the ties are there, you know, they're ready for it. Yeah, nobody runs anything at the World Cup that isn't good enough to be there, right? They're in the business of winning races. That's why we see the infamous things being sharpied out, things being marked up as things that aren't what their sponsor correct is, because riders have that association with something. I think sometimes it's in their head. That is the thing that they can win on and, and they won't change. It's skipping on a bit. That Eel Mountain Rim, you did let on to me that it has been ridden at the World Cup. Yeah, the Eel Mountain Rim. What we've done is we took the rear rim from the Enduro Wide. So the Enduro Wide V2, like their front and rear specific rims, FEA developed in house just across from where Ollie's sitting. That's the reinforced rear rim. So when we were developing the Eel Mountain, 
we'd already been testing these wheels on loads of various different kind of racing. And actually, Lachlan Blair got the Enduro-wide V2 wheels, our Enduro wheel, and raced them at a number of World Cups. We were like, okay, you know, this, we know it's good, but we'd never tested it to that level before. And he was blown away by it. So when we started putting together the e-bike wheel, again, we don't like to pass unnecessary costs onto the rider. We want them to have the best performance and the, you know, the best durability and the, you know, the best product that we can offer. But if we already have that product available, why not repurpose it? So that's what we've done. We've basically repurposed the rear rim as a front and rear on the EL Mountain. It's made this really, really durable e-bike wheel set that stands up to like heavy e-bike abuse. Yeah, I definitely am a heavy e-bike abuser. I don't mean heavy. I mean riding hard. I'll let you dig that hole, Andy. It's fine. Michael, just to we'll clarify this, my line choice isn't maybe the best in the world. I can answer that once I see your line choice. I've never seen you pick a line ever. You just uh, point Mike in a direction and hold on. I like variety, Mike. You know, it's just you ride a trail one way. I like a bit of variety in how I ride my trail. It's like saying I like a bit of variety with my food, so I've added hot sauce into my eyes. <laughs> when you get down, I don't think I've seen you crash that many times, to be fair. So whatever you're doing is obviously working for you somehow. I am, like I say, I'm very average. I'm always in the middle of that masses category. I always feel like masses is a harsh category. And before anybody makes any old jokes, I am still way in the masses category, by the way, right in the middle. Thank you. I could see Mike prepping ready for abuse. But, you know, if you look at that category this weekend, I'm not sure whether they're going to put the Pro-Am category in. I'll have Ollie Morris and Ben Deakin in that category. So it is always a big span, but it's good fun. Everyone in that class is there to have fun, really. Well, that's the main point, isn't it? Like, if you start taking it too seriously, you don't enjoy it anymore. You've got to be there, and it doesn't matter if you win or lose. As long as you don't hurt yourself, that's the main thing. And I guess we'll talk the elephant in the room while you're all busy getting ready to abuse me. Tire pressures. Mike, you can start, because Mike has many issues with my tire pressures. It's because you run about four PSI in your tire pressures with inserts. Uh, You run the tire pressure of someone who's already punctured uh, in preparation for you puncturing. How do you check your tire pressures? You just thumb in it. Like, you need a co-peak digital air pressure monitor, don't you? I do need one, Andy. I do. I do need, if only we need someone. It's the one thing everyone needs. If they've got a track pump, get a digital pressure gauge. They're not expensive, and you should check them every time before you ride. It takes 30 seconds. And then you can find out that you're running 15 PSI, and I can abuse you on the trail for it. I got a flat shot. And someone went, you, you rode that flat really well. I was like, yeah. It happens to me a lot. I'm, I'm kind of used to it now. I'm sort of, you know, I can understand how far I can push it. Well, this is the thing. If you know your pressures, you won't have those issues. I can't remember the last time I had a flat tyre. I check my pressures every time I rode. Same. I can't remember the last flat tyre I had, to be honest. Nick, this is just you. You just need to sort your pressures out, mate. I feel like it's becoming an intervention. It's either the best or the lamest intervention ever. <laughs> the trouble is, though, most interventions start with you're in a safe place, and this definitely doesn't feel like that. Have you ever used an online uh, calculator for pressures? No, I haven't. No. I would highly recommend. There's various different ones out there from certain competitors, <laughs> <laughs> which are really good. And I'd recommend that gives a very good baseline. I actually run what they say. How did you come to your perfect pressure, Mike? For me, it really was I've been riding mountain bikes quite a while now. And I've played around with the pressures, you know, I've had a digital gauge for a little bit and it's still been the start of the rides, playing around with the pressures, seeing what works, seeing what definitely didn't work. And, you know, I followed all the advice. Everyone has that mate who goes, no, you need, you need to run lower, lower, lower pressures. And I remember racing at Hard Rock one year and I was running something like 18, 19 PSI in the back tire, came around the corner and nearly ripped the tire off the rim. It, you know, burped most of the air off because there just wasn't enough air pressure in the tire for that sort of course. Now I tend to be running thicker and burlier tires because i just hate punctures so yeah i mean for the sort of pirelli race tires i'm running you know i'm, I'm looking at sort of a, a 20 front 22 23 psi in the rear which is pretty low but it seems to work for my riding style i'm not the most aggressive rider and i don't ride a lot in rocks tend to be over you know wet roots and mud and soil so i tend to run them a little bit softer but if i'm going up to the peaks where it's just uh, whales where it's shale and and rocks then yeah a couple of extra psi in for good measure yeah i mean that's kind of where I'm at now with pressures, I'd run 20 front, 20 to 22 in the back. I do run the thing that Mike hates the most, which is some cush core. That's not fair. It's not just cush core. It's all tire inserts. Core isn't to protect you from punctures, though, is it? It's like a damping system, isn't it? 
Yeah, it's exactly why I run it. I mean, I've broken both elbows. So sharp, sudden impacts. If I hit a root at high speed, that impact jars my elbow. I get a dead arm. It's not a great experience. So I've kind of gone to running it front and back, and it's kind of solved that issue for me. I don't get that jarring. I definitely prefer the XC to the full thickness Pro Cushcore. It is worth mentioning that not all tire inserts are made equal, of course. You know, someone sticking a, a pool noodle in the tire and expecting it to do literally anything is sorely mistaken. You know, there are some good systems out there. You know, as Andy rightly says, it's not just necessarily about puncture protection. It could be rim protection. It could be adding a damp feel to the tire. It could, you know, there are some that are all about tires maintaining the shape. But that's where you do start to get into some issues, I think, with inserts. For racers, or those people that are looking for that extra security that makes sense, something I've seen is a lot of people running quite lightweight tires. You know, they're trying to build that lightweight bike, keep getting punctures. So put inserts in there and think it is going to help. And actually, all it's doing is giving whatever it is puncturing your tire something hard to press against. It's almost like think of chopping something on a chopping board. If you've got a hard surface to press against, you're more likely to get a cut. So you end up with a heavier setup than just running a burlier tire. I find it interesting. Obviously, I'm not just plugging other articles I do. Going through bike checks and stuff. Inserts have almost disappeared in the downhill world. There's one or two guys running them. Same kind of reason that I am. that They like the dampening feel. But generally, for punch protection, it's kind of disappearing. Weirdly, XC, they're everywhere. Absolutely everywhere. When we did that XC bike way off, even though the bikes were coming in at 10.2 kilos and stuff, they were all running front and rear inserts because, like Andy said earlier, track's getting burlier and they're maybe not using burlier enough tire or whatever. They want that extra comfort. But it might not be necessarily for protection. You know, running some like those cross-country inserts, a lot of the time, you got to remember it again, this is the upper echelon of the sport. These are guys with pit crews. So it might not be that they're looking for protection. What it might be is they want the security that they can finish doing a lap of the course, get to the pits and swap out a wheel quickly. You might lose five seconds on that lap. But you're still in the race. You're not carrying your bike on your shoulder to the pit. You're riding it to the pit. It's a difference. So I actually ride country as well. And I find that I come up across country bike from absolutely battered because I think there's not enough compliance in the bike as partly as in. You don't have that forgivingness of the suspension. I always forget. I come off like in my privacy. I'll no give in suspension. I'm like, came forearm pump left, right and centre. Inserts there will actually have that auto effect or that dampening effect there just to allow them just a little bit of comfort. That first 10 mil of travel, right? The first bit of suspension you use is that piece in your tyre from when you hit the rock or ground or whatever, that first bit of movement. I've been on and off inserts recently. And I can see benefits of both, but I personally prefer what I like to feel what's under the tyre. There's also no guarantee that the insert you're using isn't actually going to have a detrimental effect on how the tyre is designed to work. The engineers, and this isn't obviously just Pirelli, but every tyre company spend hundreds of hours making sure the tyre acts in a certain way, either to fit their requirements or to fit their you know, customer requirements. All of a sudden, you can start screwing with that with some aftermarket thing that hasn't been tested, some combination that hasn't been tested because someone told you it was a good thing with that particular combo. You start taking it outside that box and it starts acting pretty weird. When you go back to what we were talking about earlier, snappiness, you're losing that snappiness because you've got that additional rotational mass, which is quite a lot. I hadn't even thought about that because the wheel I put on the rear when I was running mullet doesn't have a cushion in it. It's a piece of dampening, right? You're putting it in there to stop that happening a little bit. If you're running the same pressure, then you're ramping your tires up quicker, aren't you? But then if you drop it, then it's becoming like, yeah, it's really soft and then ramping up towards the end. Actually, Ferg talks about that quite a lot. He has the same. He likes to run a cross-country. He runs them, but he likes to run the smallest possible insert because otherwise it, he just finds it ruins like his control over the bike. It's a funny one, though. Isn't it? Some people aren't affected by these things as well. I definitely find that with bike checks I do. You speak to some riders, Blinky, Sam Blinkensop, it's probably the one extreme. Like speaking to Sam, he could literally tell you every minute detail on that crest line, how he's got it set up. His suspension settings are terrifying. Like the rebound, I rode it just to the lake in Lenzerheide and it scared the hell out of me, man. The rebound is so fast that SL Suntor make him a special rebound circuit that is only used for him. But he is very much a detail guy. He can tell you everything about that bike. 
And then the other end of the spectrum, I did Ryan Pinkerton's bike. And Ryan's like, I just get on a bike and ride it. I've got a few things that I've got an issue with. You know, the usual stuff that we all do. Like, I like my levers at a set angle. But other than that, I get on the bike. Mechanic says it's good. I go ride the bike. There's definitely always that massive extreme that some people, they just want a bike to ride and they don't really, I don't say they don't care, but it doesn't affect them, like you said. But other people are really kind of picky with stuff. Whilst we're talking World Cup stuff, both companies, obviously Hunt, Pirelli, have stuff that's been used at the World Cup. And that includes EDR. Do you think the World Cup is still that pinnacle place for testing? Do you think it's still the holy grail getting stuff out there to test it? Or do you think that's kind of had its day a little bit? Ollie and I were chatting about this the other day, actually. Once our rate wheels get to that stage, they're pretty much signed off. Like you were saying then, like Blanky's bike, you couldn't ride that. To develop a product specifically for that rider, it's great for that person, you know, like 1%, but it's no good for everyone else. If we fall into that trap of developing just for the top riders, then it's not going to be suitable for everyone else who rides it. So what we tend to do is develop, obviously, for the highest performance and durability and for riders who are going to, well, again, for the disciplines, depending on what they're doing with them. We generally do a lot more riding just by Ollie. Like Ollie's a proper good rider. When he can stay on his bike, he's mint. Those five seconds are fast, honestly. <laughs> yeah, let's cut out. <laughs> Pineapple. <laughs> no, honestly, like, so we'll work with like Ollie, like, so Ollie will develop the wheel, he'll go out and ride it. Not only does he know like everything about it in terms of like how it performs in simulations and FEA and, you know, impact testing in the lab, he actually knows how it works on the trail. And we do a lot with, you know, like local national riders and racers and just like proper rippers. Like, if you, you know, people who are like, riding every day. It's not just about the strength and impact resistance. We need to make sure that they're durable, the bearings last and everything. So there's a lot going into it. And it's only when basically we know the wheel is like, this is sick. We know we're going to launch it. We're very, very confident. The World Cup riders will be using them, but not necessarily at race stage at this point. And they'll get them. Because another thing is like what we would not part prototype wheel under a World Cup rider and be like, go for it. <laughs> like, good luck. I used to spend a lot of time at the World Cups, like with the teams and stuff, going behind the back of the tents. It's pretty shocking what's behind there. That's when Andy was working, Mike, yeah? I had a beer in my hand. It wouldn't be the World Cup without a beer. I guess Mike probably put their money where their mouth was, though, and they're like a principal sponsor of the team. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they've, they've sort of sponsored up almost the whole brand, the cross-country, the EDR, and the, and the World Cup. They've sponsored a fair other guys in the, the cross-country circuit. You know, you've got the, there's the Willier team. There's also Canyon Collective, or Canyon Collective Pirelli. They've gone pretty big on it, and you know, there's been some pretty good results from them. Someone like Hattie Handen has been absolutely incredible. You know, watch her on the EDR circuit, then just entering the occasional World Cup downhill race. You know, like, as you do. I interviewed her after Fort William, well, mid-Fort William at the national round, right? And it was funny. I'd just spoken to Greg and done his bit. And obviously, Greg's probably put the most laps in ever at Fort William. And we were talking about Fort William track. I spoke to Hattie, he goes, how many laps have you done? And she went, four <laughs> i was just like and you're just gonna go racing tomorrow okay that's fine is it right just yeah she's just chill yeah it's fine break a top 10 in the downhill just you know you've done a few runs it's great the tires have definitely up to the job and so we've very much seen that in the in the world cup circuit now and you know to echo what you know, andy and ollie said as well it's they're not testing at this stage in the world cups you know no one is uh they're not getting a brand new tire and going right well it's a new tread pattern we don't know what it's going to do let us know on your race running and yeah, go from there. You will see in some of the pros, they'll be running slight variations of certain tires, especially with the, you know, the really, really big brands. It might be a, a slightly thicker casing. It might be a slightly softer rubber, but it, it's all marginal. It's stuff that we'd never know. Yeah, those guys can feel. And sometimes it works. And as we've seen in the World Cup this year, sometimes it really doesn't. I guess I'm going to pull away a little bit from rims and tires and stuff because there's something really specific I wanted to talk about especially with the Hunt guys, is hubs. I know the ones in these e-bike wheels are a little bit different. They're specific, right, for that purpose? The whole wheel itself is an e-bike-specific wheel. We use the same rim, rear rim as the Enduro-wide V2, and then that's it. The hub shells are the same, but even the internals are different as well. Like, so what we've done with the E-all mountain is we know that that wheel is going to be ridden no matter what the condition is, because that's the whole point of an e-bike, isn't it? It's miserable outside. I do not want to go on that slog up the hill. I'm going to jump on the e-bike, get up there as quick as I can. Especially like we're talking like December now. The weather's miserable. E-bikes are perfect. They're going to get ridden dirty, especially a privateer bike. Like our bikes are designed to be ridden 
put away, ridden again. Like maintenance is like secondary. Riding and enjoying is the main thing. We've made sure that the EO mountain wheel is going to be super durable. So brass nipples on that. Mike, here's another one for you. Nipple washers as well. You know exactly what I want for Christmas, Andy, don't you? <laughs> it was going to be a secret sentiment, you know. You've ruined the surprise now. Triple bites, pillar spokes, front and rear. And then obviously the seals have been updated too. So we actually use a softer rubber in those as well, which is something we're going to bring into other wheels as well. Again, it just means like you riding on all the crud and you know the miserable weather when you come to clean it. You don't have to be as precious when you're cleaning it. Obviously, don't jet wash your hubs directly, but the seals are there to protect them. But then that hub is also designed to take that torque. The free hub on it is uh, our new phase engage free hub. So on the Enduro Wide V2s, we've got a six by one free hub. So it's a five degree engagement. On the EOL Mountain, it's a three by two. So you've got three that you know engaged, and you've got no, it's the other way around. Sorry, I'm doing it the wrong way around. Six by one on the EOL Mountain. So then you've got six points of engagement grabbing the hub at once. And the thing is, it's like, like our e-bike is 85 newton meters of torque. That's kind of like average now. But obviously, hunt wheels are like, they're really popular for, you know, your first upgrade for your bike or if you're building a custom bike. And we've seen a lot of these. You know Rob from Rob Rides EMTB, the YouTuber? Like he did this video where he made this Chinese e-bike and it's 120 newton meter motor. And some of them are 160. And we're like, yeah, when we're making this wheel and we're saying it's an e-bike wheel, this is the perfect wheel for those custom-built bikes. So we wanted to make sure that it can handle that kind of torque. So yeah, we didn't just put a lightning bolt on it and we're like, ta-da, e-bike wheel. There's no positive and negatives on there or anything. It hasn't got a Duracell looking hub. It's a proper e-bike wheel set. It's been thought all the way through. It's kind of why it attracted me to put it onto the Jekyll when it's set up as a downhill bike. I'm looking for the same thing, right? I want that durability. I want it to take the hit. I want it to take, as Mike says, my inability to choose a line and still come out the other side and still be vaguely wheel-shaped. It does make it interesting for that crossover between the two. What about maintenance? We'll quickly cover on maintenance before I ask you a question about the future-ish stuff. What should people be doing to look after their wheels? I mean, spoke tension, I guess, is something you need to look at every now and then. And then bearings? So primary one is cleaning the bike how you're cleaning it yeah feel free to use jet wash but just don't aim at the hub then i would actually say the next biggest thing you probably do is just to strip your hub every couple of months clean out regrease check the bearings like rotate those bearings fit under using your thumb i think that's the biggest one really and then if you are looking to then add your spoke tensions and feel them around with your hands and you feel, oh, they are a bit on the baggy side, you know, probably look to do it. But if you're not confident, I'd probably recommend going to your local bike shop and get them sort out because it's quite a big thing to do it yourself, unless you're confident, obviously. Wheel building is not for the faint-hearted, right? No, not at all. And those tensions, if you get them out or there's like any discrepancy of tensions, it can have a huge effect on the entire wheel. Like you could ride off a wheel so easy if you've got one spot that's tighter than the other. Like it's actually a huge issue, which... I think people quite realize. So if you do it, oh, just like using your multi-tool just to nip out those little uh, nipples. We can't just simply say this is the tension because we always make sure that our, all of our tour gauges are, you know, like the spoke tension gauges are calibrated to our specs. They get sent off to Taiwan to get calibrated to their machine to make sure that our, all our wheels are calibrated to the same level. And that's the level we go to with our wheels and wheel builds. Even if like you were like, oh, I can build a wheel. Like we couldn't give you the tension because it's like, we don't know what, if your tool has been calibrated correctly. So, but a good wheel builder should be able to sort them out. Spoke tension is an interesting thing. Again, throughout the World Cup, chatting to the Continental Newt Proof team, Jack there, their mechanic was saying that actually they play with spoke tension a little bit, depending on tracks. Places that have got large amounts of fast open off camber and things. They play with the spoke tension there to try and get more grip. I mean, that's not something that someone like me riding at a mini downhill should ever be playing with. But I think it's an often overlooked thing, right? There are spokes are as important as the rim, as the hub, if not more so. They play a big part. And you sell complete builds, right, really, rather than custom builds where people can change them up. But some of our wheels actually feature different spokes, front and rear, not just the spoke count, but the actual gauge of the spoke. So like the proven race Enduro wheel set uses triple butted spokes, front and rear. It has the PSR 2018s on the back, which have got like an internal diameter of 1.8. And then the 2016s on the front, which are 
that helps save weight, but it also helps us build in more compliance on the front wheel. Obviously, we can't send them out like with different spoke tensions because that requires more maintenance. We can build it in using different spoke diameters, different spoke counts. And I guess, Mike, you're the, one of the biggest bike kicks I know, so you happily get involved here. You've got classified hubs that you're using on some of your wheels, not for mountain bike stuff, not for downhill, but they're creeping in, right? Geared hubs. And we're seeing gearbox bikes appearing. Do you think there's a future in that? I mean, if I'm looking for a bike park bike slash downhill bike, stuff like the classified hubs where I don't really want a big range, right? I use probably four gears. But do you think that type of things could come in? Or do you think it's going to stay in gravel where it belongs? We sell classified proven mountain bike wheels. Yeah, I mean, I see it as a big advantage for stuff where you don't want a mech hanging off the side of your bike all the time or, you know, you don't need that range. There's options available like gearboxes and other things. Gearboxes and e-bike motors. Now, I think there was one that started to sort of merge those two and they've done a fairly decent job of it. That seems like such a good idea. That's the future for e-bikes, in my opinion, whether or not it will take off because they are a bit more expensive. You know, drivetrains have gotten really good. They have got really, really good. Yeah, I mean, you just have to look at that Gamex downhill bike and you go, it makes sense. If you whack that, all right, there's a pulley there. That pulley is going to take a whack on a rock a lot better than a little seven-speed mech sat there dangling out the side of your bike. My issue with the gearbox bikes is they're great. Like, the rear suspension is mint on things. Like, there's a few of them, the suspension is very good. But climbing on them is not very good. I know you shouldn't really change under load as you're climbing, but... On a gearbox bike, you have to actually get off the power, change it, then get back on. That is not ideal. Like There needs to be some sort of clutch or something built into them. I think the one that Kamex are using, they can shift when you're not pedaling as well. Yeah, yeah, you can do that. But you need to get off the pressure, don't you, when you're up climbing? In fact, it's a big benefit. If you think of like Fort Bill when you're coming through the motorway and you really want to crank for the finish, being able to be down coasting but get into that big gear makes loads of sense. Years ago, there was an international standard for a gearbox, and it was called G-Box, and it was SR Suntour who made it. And uh, they worked with Nikolai and a few other brands. Didn't take off. It would be cool. I'd love to see gearbox bikes, but people like to fiddle with the bikes. I think that's the problem with the e-bike as well. Like You can't change your motor. You've got a Bosch motor or a Shimano motor. That's it. You can't swap from one to the other. I'm astounded it's not there already. It's something that you'd think would be, we should have learned the lessons from the past, right? And from the off and going, we need a standard for this. And it all bolt on in the same way. And you can just swap them from one to the other. I was going to say, with mountain biking, though, you know, compared to the road cycling stuff, it's still new. And we're still finding that new technology. You know, you look at road bikes now versus road bikes 10 years ago. It's marginal gains. It's marginal improvements. Fundamentally, they're quite similar. Whereas you look at a mountain bike 10 years ago to what it is now. It's a completely different bike. That's one of the things I think mountain biking is so exciting. Or the mountain bike development is so exciting because things are still new and still coming up with new ideas. They're still innovating. I think the pace is mountain as well. You probably slow down that pace of innovation. I know we're talking about downhill bikes, but you look at the pace that e-bikes have evolved like in the last few years, it's crazy. I mean, who would have thought that we'd be talking about sub 20 kilo bikes with full powered motors, full batteries, but also having that, option of more than one type of e-bike before the idea was you're going to have this big almost downhill bike that you can pedal everywhere and that's what everyone will want and now we've kind of settled into this kind of we've got some enduro type bikes with a bit of travel and then we've got down the other extreme the scott lumen that weighs absolutely nothing and is a really lightweight bike i mean just look at how like smartphones have changed over the years the other day was mad like i went to the post office to send something back to amazon And the woman was like, I had to give her a QR code and she had to scan it. And it was just like, she got her post office iPhone to scan this thing. And I was just like, when the smartphone was invented, no one thought that this would be a use for that. It's probably just worth explaining, Ollie, there was a time before smartphones. Were those red boxes on the side of the street? (laughs) (laughs) I think you're right. The pace of technology is nuts. Just the fact that, you know, the T-type new group sets from SRAM can readjust themselves and, and you hit them and they spring back and all of that type of thing. And then you've got SR Suntour making pretty much fully automated suspension on those new Pinarellos that have got pre-configured parameters in that they're opening and closing valves and stuff. So I think technology is going to come. Olins are obviously doing something funky at the heart of Loic's bike. 
eventually one day we might find out what that is. Do you think that's going to trickle down, though? Do you think, like, the average rider, or even, like, a private? and when I say privateer, I don't mean our brand, I mean, like, a privateer racer. Like a British national elite rider, yeah? Like, all that technology is mint, but when it goes wrong, when your battery runs out and your access rear met, what do you do? I take it off my dropper, put it on my neck. <laughs> <laughs> I think Olin's would say no, and they wouldn't want to do that. They're that type of brand, aren't they, where, where they will go out hunting for the best of the best for the downhill. So tires are a weird one, Mike. People ride the hell out of them until they're pretty much bold, and then they swap them. There is some maintenance you need to do still to your tires, right? You need to keep on top of a few things. First thing to remember is our tire is a consumable and should be treated as such. You know, everything has a lifespan. Everything has a usable shelf, well, a usable service life. So there's the basic maintenance for, for you and your riding. Make sure your pressures are where they should be, not at 14 PSI, Nick. You want to make sure that you've no sort of significant damage to the tire. Naturally, mountain bike tires take a beating. You know, you, after a few rides, have a look. There'll be little nicks or there might be little cuts out there. Sort of, it's it standard, that's fine. If you start getting big slashes through the sidewall or you start getting some like the knobs being sort of like torn off, then you're going to get a decrease in performance. You know, if, if you're the kind of person who's swapping and changing tires around quite frequently, I used to do that, you know, so about five years ago. You do it in a car park before we go riding. You still do it. I've just got a much, much smaller pool of tires that I swap between. Yeah, but if you are that kind of like serial tire swapper, it's worth making sure that your tires are kept somewhere that's dry, somewhere that's the temperature is relatively stable. What you don't want to do is get a tire that you've had in a box in a garage that's been, you put it away half full of sealant. It's done about 14 heat cycles in your garage through winters and summers. You get it out and it's cracked to bits and look terrible. There's going to be a huge decrease in performance. It's a consumable part. There's no fixed lifespan. It's just generally just trying to keep on top of it. Do a visual inspection, make sure it's all running well. And uh, yeah, you should be able to get a good amount of life out of your tire. Changing conditions and changing tires. I mean, racing's a big thing, right? Like most people, I'll run one set of tires. I'm not fast enough or racing at a level enough where I'm going to take a second set of tires with me. Maybe I'll have a spare tire in the van that just in case I rip a hole in one, but that's about it. Condition changes. Is there a big cliff edge of performance throughout the range of the Pirelli stuff from the S to the M? and the T? It's maybe not cliff edge. You know, you're not talking about oh, one tire will, you'd be sliding off sideways through the tire will be like Velcro. The tires will always work within a range. You know, within a Venn diagram, there's still a good amount of, of shared space. So the way Pirelli Scorpion tires work, you sort of have in the race range, you've got four different tread patterns. So the M for mixed conditions, S, soft conditions, T for traction, and a mud, which is a pure mud spot. The mixed conditions is sort of the one you'll find most people will want to run. It's the most versatile. It'll do everything from nice, loamy, sort of a, you know, into mud, like soft over loose, even onto hard pack. It'll do most conditions quite well. Tires are always a compromise. You get something that's going to work on hard pack, if all of a sudden the next part of the track goes into thick clay, a tire that excels in one, maybe not going to excel in the other. Whereas if you find you're riding on a lot of you know, really fresh cut, off-piste, thick mud, then going something like the S, or the, the soft conditions tire, or the, or the mud spike, is going to have a pretty significant benefit. And although it might not be on sort of outright grip, you'll probably see benefits in terms of mud shedding, the tire clearing, and biting into that soft terrain, which is going to inevitably lead to an increase in performance. You, know, you might have some super burly tire, but it's got really tight, spaces between the knobs as soon as that thing packs up you've essentially got a bmx tire yeah mud tires are interesting to me i mean anyone who's been around the world cup mud tires and cutting mud tires is an interesting racing phenomenon you know you see plenty of people rushing for tire cutters when conditions start to change your t-tire kind of almost is set up for a little bit of cutting already out of the box right well, yeah, there's actually two tires from Pirelli uh, Scorpion Race Range. There's the, the Scorpion T and the Scorpion Mud. Both of those actually have sort of pre-marked cut points to allow you to sort of customize the field, customize the performance of the tire. They recognize that people want slightly different things for the tires for slightly different conditions. And especially when you're looking at the real sort of pro level, they might be just trimming off a mill on the tread, trimming off a couple of mil because they're after a little bit more speed. In the T tire, T standing for traction. That's more of a sort of a paddle-shaped design, so it's really good for braking. It's really good for driving. Because there's more of that paddle lug, that pattern on there, 
it's going to pack up with mud a little more than a more open tread. So all the cut marks allow you to do is just open that tread up a little bit. You get a bit more space, you get a bit more mud shedding. It's still going to have a similar braking performance, but not quite as much as that full paddle. Same with the mud spike, you know, the mud tire. The mud tire is only available in the, the downhill casing rather than enduro. It might be too muddy to run the S, not quite muddy enough to run a full mud spike. It's a classic mud spike issue, right? I almost think riders get excited when they get a mud spike out. I mean, uh, I was at Hardline this year and they're all getting very excited that it was muddy enough that they're able to run mud spikes. It was funny. Yeah, and if you ever get the chance to ride, you know, that, that full mud spike, the level of grip from it is absolutely outstanding. You've got to use them in the right conditions. I've had friends that have had uh, full mud spikes and taken those on some pretty, pretty hard back downhill runs and it's the sketchiest thing to watch. They're squirming all over the place. It's having the right tool for the right job Sure, you can bash a nail into a wall with the back of a screwdriver, but you probably shouldn't. Well, we're heading towards the 90-minute mark, and hearing this lot talk for that long is enough for anybody. Three questions I want to ask each of you. First off is, I guess it's going to be different because one will be about tyres and one will be about wheels, but it's fine. Your advice for your average person when they go to buy a set of wheels or tyres. Advice for me at the weekend, and I'm pretty sure all of you are going to say tyre pressures because it's becoming like a bullying topic now. And then lastly, a myth that you'd like to bust about either wheels or tyres. As Ollie's the youngest, and he's probably going to be the least abusive, Ollie, do you want to start? I would say go with regards to choosing a wheel anyway, to go for something that suits your riding style. If you ride Joe, like, get into a wheel. If you ride mostly trail, get into a wheel. Tip for the weekend. I'm not going to say tyre pressures. I'm going to say um, have fun. Andy said it earlier, like, if you're not having fun, what's the point in doing it, right? Your myth you want to bust. Can I say go underbite? Underbiking is the most fun ever. You learn so much, and I mean, you go slower, but you'll have more fun in the process. One of the best moments of my riding in the last few years was going up Snowden on a 120 mil trail bike and then riding the Ranger path and sessioning it as well, for that matter. Yeah, and that was one of the most fun things I've done in a long time. I mean, that's why I got a country bike because I love that underbite to fit because it's so sick. I'm starting to see why you might fall off a lot, Ollie. Yeah, that's good advice. I mean, I am over-forking an Enduro bike, but yeah, I do agree. Like sometimes a 140, 150mm travel bike in a downhill setting can be really fun. Andy, I'm leaving you to last. Mike can go next, I guess. You will often see guys running really, really aggressive tyres all the time. There's that idea that the more aggressive the tyre, the more grip it has, and it's just not true. It goes back to the right tool for the right job. If you find you're riding, you know, there's some absolutely fantastic trail centers in the UK, but the things are made of hard pack and rock. And if you run a really aggressive, like downhill tire on there, you're going to have a miserable time. It's going to be off. Not only is it going to be draggy and it's going to take all your strength, it's going to remove all the feel for the trail and you're going to wash out because you've got very little rubber because there's nothing to bite into. So it's the right tool for the right job. If you're riding fresh cut, get some nice, big, aggressive tire. If you're riding trail centers, Cross-country or trail tyre, man, the feeling of that is so quick and so efficient. It feels fantastic. So get the right tyre for what you're riding most if you want to have a good time. Or as Ollie said, you want to have a silly fun, go massively under-tired, get used to sliding and crashing. Yeah, what about your advice for people who, who are looking to buy new tyres? Talk to your shop. Go into your local shop and actually talk to those guys. You know, they're super knowledgeable. Don't just go for what your mates will tell you. Do your research, have a look online, look at the reviews. We work with all the different sort of media guys out there, all the different magazines. They've reviewed the tires till the cows come home. We've had some absolutely outstanding reviews on the race tires. So if you're looking for something like that, then check them out. You know, you can go with a bit of confidence, but go talk to your local shop. They'll know your local trails. They know what it's like. They should be able to uh, advise you the best starting point to go. Top tip for the weekend? I know what it's going to be. You have a digital pressure gauge. You have one. I know you do. Use it. I've kind of lost it, though. Go to your local shop and buy a new digital pressure gauge and use it. It's going to be difficult to replicate the downhill bike on the e-bike. There's going to be a couple of kilos in it. Try some different tire pressures. Do the same run three or four times on the e-bike. Change your tire pressure by two PSI front and back time. See how it feels. Make small changes. Keep a record of them in your phone or something just to know it. And you'll find that one of the runs will start to feel pretty good. It'll feel pretty pinned and you'll arrive. This is close. 
go too far, dial it back. Yeah, I mean, that's the advice we got when I was speaking to some guys at the World Cup. And the biggest one I think everyone should take away is make notes of your setup. Things get knocked, right? You, you clean a fork, you knock your adjusters. Tire pressures go up and down with temperature changes. You know, things change. Yeah, making a note is a great piece of advice. I'll let the last bit go to Andy. For choosing wheels, I would echo what Ollie said. Buy the wheels to suit your riding style. So like, but this is a really tricky one. Like one person's enduro is another person's trail. If you're riding in the Surrey Hills, the trails are completely different to if you're riding in Scotland. So take your local riding conditions into account too when you're choosing your wheels. And on the carbon and aluminium thing as well, like the myth thing, I would like people to think about carbon fiber as a process rather than a material. It blows my mind how many people refuse to try carbon, whatever it is, frames, bars, wheels, whatever, because back in the 1990s, they saw one break once. It's like there's so much carbon fiber out there that's crazy strong. It's the process, not the material. It's almost like saying aluminium is just metal. What's your bike made of? Metal. Oh, when people say alloy. I think you're then also thinking that the material, like carbon, they've gone through exactly the same testing. They must have gone through exactly the same testing to make it on the market in the first place. So therefore, it's got to be just as good as the other. Although, if you are using carbon, get a torque wrench. I've seen aluminium fail for the same reasons, right? You put a crack in it that you don't realize or you, you've done something to it beforehand. There's usually a backstory to why these big failures happen. I completely agree with Andy. I mean, Lots of modern airliners now, carbon fiber parts are pretty much the norm everywhere. And the other one that always gets me is when people get freaked out when things are bonded together or because there you go, it's glued together. Don't ever get on a plane then. Yeah, it blows me away. Choosing wheels, style of riding, where you ride, and also your bike as well. Like if you've got like a cross country bike, you're not going to need enduro wheels. It's common sense, obviously. Yep, but the weekend, where is it? The race? Forest of Dean? Yeah. Go and hang around next to Katie Kerr. Because she's always line spotting for everyone else. No, you're right. Ollie Morris is going to get followed around an awful lot by me. That's his job, right? He's a line coach for the best guys in the world. That's a great tip for everyone, really, is step back and look at lines. I know I jokingly say I don't pick lines. I'm just probably more clumsy than anything else. But taking that step back is a great piece of advice and have a look at it. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you, everybody. Enjoy. And hopefully there'll be more of the same next week. So, everyone, thanks for listening. That's episode one done. Head on over to Instagram, where we're at Mandal Media, to find out when episode two drops. It's going to be a little bit different to episode one. We're not going to really be talking tech. We're going to go through my race weekend that's just gone, what I thought went well, what may not have gone well. And also, I'm going to grab a few people along the way, speak to them about why they race mini downhills, what keeps them coming back, and what makes this little series so great. Head on over to Instagram and check out when that goes live. <laughs>